That's better. Now, a couple of days ago, my daughter, she's three years old. Um, she usually sleep around 2 in the morning. She wakes up about 10, 30, 11 in the morning. So a couple of days ago, I was trying to wake her up. And I said, Tia, it's morning. It's daytime. You have to wake up, wake up. And I keep repeating, wake up, wake up. And she gets annoyed. So finally, she opened her eyes and she said, stop wasting people's time. I mean, <laughs> three years old and she would say that. So I'm taking that cue. I'm not going to waste time. 21 years ago, September 11, 2001, about 8.45 in the morning, everyone was doing their own business as usual. A Boeing 767 loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center is home to more than 430 companies from 28 countries. And these companies, including banking and finance, insurance, transportation, trade brokerage, trade associations, offices of foreign governments, and our very own United States Department of Commerce is there. Department of Labor, Securities and Exchange Commission, Standard Charter Bank, and the Secret Service are all there. The World Trade Center is the symbol of America's might. And in front of the whole world, in just one day, it came crashing down. The New York City lost about 143,000 jobs on the first month. The stock trading market fell. The World Trade Center was a whopping $60 billion. This was America's Achilles heel. In the first century of Christianity, Rome of the Roman Empire, ruled the entire Western Hemisphere. The rule of this vast empire lies in the hands of just one man, the Emperor Caesar. His son, his name, is Augustus Caesar. And although Rome started with the SPQR, Senatus Populus, K. Rome, which means Rome should be ruled by the Senate, but the will of Caesar prevailed, and Caesar become, became a dictator for life. And because of that, Caesar demanded exclusive worship. Sorry, let me take that back. Caesar demanded worship, not exclusive though. Because Rome, in their religious nature, is polytheistic. That means any Roman can have as much as God as he wants to worship. But Emperor Caesar must be primus inter pares, which means he must be first among equals. And so if a Jew who believes in Yahweh, who demands exclusive worship, are put in a compromising situation when he becomes a Roman citizen, or when Rome overpowers Israel. And here's the dilemma. A Jew who worships Yahweh, and Yahweh who demands exclusive worship, must compromise in order to survive the Roman Empire. And this is when you find, when you read the Bible, you find that Annas and Caiaphas, both high priests, put money changers in the temple. Because if you're a Jew and you use the coin of Caesar, there's a big problem there. Now one day, a group of religious leaders came to Jesus and asked him, 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You probably remember that when you're reading the Gospels. So in Matthew 22, it said, Jesus said, Show me the coin used to pay tax. And they brought him a denarius and asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. If you're looking at the coin, here's the, here's the photo of the coin. The emperor in the time of Jesus was Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar. The coin that Jesus asked for was a denarius. It's like a penny. The problem is the coin had an inscription written in it other than the face of Tiberius. It reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine, which means Tiberius claims to be God, a living God in human form. And the Jews, when they asked, asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They were not asking an economic question. They were not asking a legal dilemma. They, they were not asking for a philosophical one. They were asking for a theological question. Should we give our allegiance and worship to Caesar or should we only give our allegiance and worship to Yahweh? That was their question. If Jesus was simply, would simply say, yes, pay your taxes, then what, kind of, what sort of Messiah would he be? But if Jesus would say, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he will be immediately arrested for treason. Now, he was put in a big dilemma here, but he knew that it was a trap. So this is what he said. He said, whose image and inscription was on the coin? In verse 21, the people said, Caesar's. And then this was his reply. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is to God's. In other versions, it says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Now, let me explain this. The weight of Jesus' reply only makes sense when we begin to realize that the word image, he was asking for the image, whose image is this? That the word image harks back to the, the creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where the Bible said Adam and Eve were made in God's image. And therefore, if we ask who belongs to who, what belongs to who, and therefore everything or everyone made in the image of God belongs to God. And so Jesus was giving a rhetorical answer. If you think that Caesar made everything, then you belong to Caesar, give it to Caesar. But if you believe that God made everyone in his image, then therefore you belong to God. Everything belongs to God. This was his answer to begin with. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is that allegiance and worship is God's right and him alone. That means no human being, Caesar, or, or anyone who bears the image in the coin is not worthy of worship. Let me tell you this. Worship is God's exclusive right. Let me say that one more time. Worship is God's exclusive right. No human being, no angels, no other gods is worthy of worship. Only God. Why? Because he's the one who created everything. See, people won't necessarily acknowledge this, but deep inside our conscience, it tells us that 
we are not just some products of random clump of cells. We are not an anomaly in the matrix. Even if we deny that we are made in the image of God by changing our colors, our ethnicity, our pronouns, we remain humans made in the image of God. Would you say yes to that? See, science is found wanting to explain the origin of everything. Mythologies fail to tell us why. Even philosophy is too abstract. But the scripture presents us the truth. God made humankind in his image, and therefore we all belong to God. This is the message of Revelation chapter 5. This is the message that John brings in the fifth chapter of Revelation. Let me read to you verse 13 and 14. It says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Now he practically said everything, all creation. Saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Those four things that were mentioned here, blessings, honor, glory, and might or power, are all acclaimed whenever Caesar comes back to Rome from a campaign. And Caesar would like these accolades that he is worthy of honor and glory and power and might. But you see, in the book of John, in Revelation chapter 5, these four things were given to the one who's sitting on the throne and to the Lamb. Which means every creature, including everything that is under heaven or in heaven, above the earth, under the earth, and in the sea, must all worship the one sitting on the throne. The angels in heaven, humankind over the earth, the dead under the earth, the sea represents where the enemy of God dwells. You, you read in Revelation 17, 18, 19 that there's a beast, there's a dragon, the sea serpent, all reside in the sea, which means all creation shouts glory to God because he is worth it. But then it says, and to the lamb. This is very interesting. Wait, what lamb? Is God the only one who's worthy of worship? But what is this lamb all about? Who knows who is the one who sits on the throne? We know that it's God. But who is this lamb? Let me read verses 1 to 6. It says that I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We know it's God. A scroll written within him and on the back, sealed with seven seals. It, mean, it means it's really closed. It's sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
Now, before you said, it's weird, I know it's weird, let me unpack it for you. So we know that John had seen visions. We know that the vision that he saw was there was a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on the throne and it's God sitting on the throne. And around him were 24 elders and 24 thrones and there were four living creatures with weird eyes and, and wings. But it represents all the created order, both in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea. But then there's this new figure that he introduced in chapter 5. He said, there was a lamb that looks like he was slain, which means he's not dead. He just looks like slain. That means he's stained with blood because the lamb that he's saying is standing beside the throne. Now, the title that he used for this lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What do these titles mean? Now, we know when we can say Mr. or Miss or Mrs. or Doctor or Sergeant or General, we know those titles. But what is this Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David? What is this? If you're unfamiliar with the story of Israel, we all know from the song, Father Abraham had many children, many children had Father Abraham. Who knows the song? We all know the song, correct? So Abraham had a son, his name is Isaac. Isaac had the son, his name is Jacob. Jacob was busy, he had 12 sons. All right? <laughs> he had 12 sons. And from the 12 sons came 12 tribes of Israel. And then from there, it became a nation. Now, before Jacob died, he gave out his blessings to his children. This is the, the best thing that he can give, not treasures, but blessings. And very distinctly, Moses recorded all the blessings given to each child and to someone by the name of Judah, the fourth child, was so different. Let me read for you what he gave to Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10. He said, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Now, nobody knows really what it meant, but guessing from the words, scepter, the ruler's staff, the talk about obedience of all peoples, we probably have an idea. This talks about leadership or kingship, but we're not really sure what that meant until Israel became a nation. And then when Israel became a nation, they started to reject God by asking a different king, someone to rule over them. It's like saying, God, we don't want you to rule over us. Send us a human king, just like any other nations in the world who was a human king. God did not disappoint them. God gave them a king from the tribe of Benjamin. Listen to what Jacob said to Benjamin, Genesis 49, verse 27. He said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Now, you must have an idea by this alone what kind of king Saul was. Israel rejected God as king, so God gave them a wolf, Saul. And a wolf did what a wolf does, devour and divide. And in the history of Israel, before the kingdom fell to the hands of the enemy, 
God came to the rescue, gave them another king by the name of David. David was said to be different because David was a man after God's own heart. A man who feels the heartbeat of God. A man who fears God the most. In fact, he was so fearful that he's willing to do whatever God wants to the point of to the point of staging a war with David, with Goliath. Sorry, David staging a war with Goliath. Goliath was a known giant warrior. David then was just a youth. But because he fears God, he defeated Goliath. That is the sort of king David was. And guess what tribe he was from? Judah. So you have an idea now what, what blessing of Judah got from Jacob. So much so that, that his heart reflects the heart of God. So the title, The Lion of Judah, The Root of David, makes sense, which means that the coming king, the king that the people are expecting to come, will be coming from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. This is one of the reasons why the Jews were so meticulous in recording their genealogies. They can trace their line all the way to David, all the way to Abraham. So when you read Matthew chapter 1, there are a long list of names and people can trace their line, their lineage, all the way. Because they were expecting a king, and they cannot miss this. Somebody from the line of Judah, from the tribe of David. David. Now this Messiah that they're, come, they're waiting for, in the time of Jesus, is expected to rule and judge. He is expected to defeat the enemy by his power and might. He will execute the full wrath of God upon the wicked. What the people are expecting them with Jesus was a lion who looks like Che Guevara. Anyone knows Che Guevara? They're expecting someone with beard and, you know, rowdy, probably like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone. Maybe something like that. They were expecting something. Someone with a sword in hand and a trumpet on the other. This one will be trash-talking the Roman Empire. He will be gathering revolutionaries and he will be raising an army. That is what they were expecting from a Messiah. But when Jesus came and presented himself, they got confused. They got confused because they found Jesus in all the wrong places, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and the sick and the infirms. He is playing philanthropies, giving food and, and fish and bread to the people. It's, it's waste, most of his time was devoted to Bible studies. And so people are thinking, is this the Messiah? And she doesn't look like the Messiah. Because they were expecting a lion. Although the title Lion of Judah signified strength and power, what John actually saw was a lamb that appeared to be slain. So he is a title, but he looks like a lamb that was slain. Now, why is this? First things first. Why is a lamb? And why did he look like he was slain? Now, what John saw was a flashback from the very beginning of the story of Israel. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, and then they went to Egypt. And they were stuck there for 430 years. And after 430 years, they become slaves. And so they cried to God, please, help us. We want to go. So God rescued them by bringing Moses. And Moses appealed to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. 
because they were slaves. Not until God killed the very firstborn of Pharaoh. The firstborn, who was the rightful heir to the throne of Pharaoh. That made him decide to let the people go. The night before he decided, the angel of death came. And the angel of death visited the land of Egypt and took all the firstborn from every family of Egypt, but spared all the firstborn from every family of the Hebrew people. Why? There's one thing that the Hebrew people did. Because of the instruction of God to Moses, they slaughtered a lamb. They call it the Passover lamb. Every household in Israel slaughtered a lamb, took the blood, painted their doors and their windows, so that when the angel of death passed by and saw the blood-stained door and window, it doesn't matter who's inside. It doesn't matter how much money the one carries inside. It doesn't matter which gender is the one inside. What matters is there's blood on the door and the window, and the angel of death passed by and spared everyone inside the house. This is what John saw, the Passover lamb. It seems like he's suggesting that there will be another exodus, another Passover, that Jesus would do the same thing, like the lamb that was slain in the time of the exodus. Now, according to John, the one sitting on the throne holds a scroll. God holds a scroll. And the one who has the right to take the scroll and open the seals is the lamb who was slain. The merit, he's worthy to open the scroll because he merited it. He's, he sacrificed life for the people. Let me read to you Revelation 5.7. It says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, what's very interesting here is that the first exodus, the people of Israel were led outside of Egypt. It's just one nation, one people, one language. And yet what John is saying here is that this lamb is different. He will be leading people from every tribe, from every language, from every people and nation. And he will create a new kind of kingdom, which is a kingdom of priests. And these people will reign forever. This is interesting. You see, the people of Israel, when they crossed the Red Sea, they crossed the wilderness, they came to Canaan, the promised land, they reigned there as kings. This is the same image that John is, is trying to tell us. But what does this mean? Now, going back to the Passover lamb, when all the Egyptians' firstborns died, it, Pharaoh decided to let the people go. So Israel crossed the Red Sea, and after crossing the Red Sea, came to the other side. Moses led the singing of a new song. You will find that in Exodus chapter 15. In the mind of John, the lamb is worthy 
to open the scroll because his blood has bought and transformed a new group of people, not just Israelites, but people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What he's saying is that there's a new exodus of people coming. There will be another redemption greater than what Moses did to the people of Israel. And this will be led by a lion that looks like a lamb. Now, I'm not sure if this is serious or boring to you, but this is interesting to me. The Bible also said that John saw that the lamb took the scroll from the one sitting on the throne. Now, what is this scroll all about? See, before, the books are called scroll. You scroll it, literally. You don't have biblion like books. So 700 years before John, there was a prophet by the name of Daniel. Now, probably you have heard about Daniel. But just like John, Daniel received visions from God. He saw visions and prophecies from God and recorded it in his book. You'll find that in the middle, somewhere in your Bible. But at the end of the book, the voice said to Daniel, seal the book. Do not interpret, do not tell people, seal the book. And it was somehow forgotten. So John picks up in Revelation this book, this scroll. This scroll contains the will of God. This scroll contains the plan of redemption, the judgment of the wicked, and the future of the world. And unless this scroll is opened and executed, the world will just think that Caesars, the dictators, and the despots are in charge of the world, of running the world. This is like the last will and testament. If, if the, one, the, in, the one who inherited everything would not open the scroll, would not break the seals, then nobody knows what's inside. What John is saying is that the lamb who was slain with the title of a lion from the uh, lion of Judah, the root of David, is worthy to open the scroll because he earned it. What's interesting here is what is said in verse 13. Very interesting. This figure of a slain lamb with the title lion took the scroll from God sitting on the throne. Now, watch carefully to make sure there's no sleight of hand. Verse 13 says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now, I search every version of the English Bible. It's the same. To the throne and to the Lamb. I search the, the Greek counterpart, the original version of the Bible, and it's the same. To the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they said, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. But what's the problem here? The God who's sitting on the throne, we already know it, the God who's sitting on the throne is the God who demands an exclusive kind of allegiance and worship. The God who's sitting on the throne is the God who told Israel, he's a jealous God. He's the one who told Israel, make no idols before me because I'm a jealous God. This is the God who said in the Bible, we were created in his image, this God. And yet, he was perfectly comfortable sharing that Worship a dress of blessing and honor and glory forever with someone else. How can God share his glory to someone else? Impossible. Unless the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, 
is more than a lion and a lamb. Are you following me? Now, this is very interesting to say the least. Now, who is this figure? We already know this figure. This is Jesus. Why, why do we know that this is Jesus? Because John told us from chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, the one he encountered from the very beginning. Let me read to you. John chapter, uh, Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Now, if Jesus is telling this, and we know that there's only one who lived and who died, and now has, has the keys to death in Hades, we know that this is Jesus. How could God, the one sitting on the throne, share his glory to the one who is dead and alive now? Which means Jesus Christ is not just a human being. It's not just a, a very wise teacher of the law. He's not just some special human being, which means he's God himself. You see, the coin says, Tiberius, the son of Caesar, the son of divine Caesar, Augustus. So who is really the son of God? If you go further, go back to when Jesus was arrested, he was brought to the high priest. And the chief priest said, are you the son of God? He was asking, are you really divine? So to think of this, who is really divine? Who is the usurper of divinity? Caesar is the usurper. And Jesus is the real son of God. Are you with me? See, Caesar may claim divinity, but he cannot claim to have died and live again. Only one person in history who, have claimed, who claims to have died and lived again. Gautama Buddha may claim to have reached enlightenment, but he cannot claim to hold the keys of death in Hades. What's the keys of death in Hades? The idea is that when a person dies, he goes to the underworld. What that means is that Jesus is holding the keys to the underworld. What this means is that he can prevent people from dying and he can bring people from the dead. That is what it means for Jesus to hold the keys to death in Hades. He's the one who said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. He told the, the sisters, Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The only reason why he can say that is because he is. The reason why we worship Jesus and he's worthy of worship is because of what he did. You see, real power, real authority, the course of the world is not decided in the Oval Office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. No, no, no. Real power, the course of the world is not decided by the votes of the House of Congress. It's not decided in the great halls of the United Nations. It's not decided in Moscow or in Beijing, not even in Buckingham Palace. Real power lies in the hands of the one sitting on the throne and the lamb who's holding the scrolls and breaking its seals. That's real power. It's not decided here on earth. It's decided in heaven. That's why we pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Real power, real authority comes from God, from heaven. See, 
we might be probably thinking God acts on impulse. But the thing is that God doesn't act on impulse. He doesn't react. He's not surprised by what we do. God has planned everything and set things to motion from the very beginning, long time ago. The scrolls and everything that is in it is what will happen in the future, before and now and in the future. Everything that will happen in the course of history is in the scrolls. And for someone to break the scrolls is for us to, to know the revelation of what will happen in the future. You know, some people would go to the fortune tellers to know their future. No, everyone wants to know their future. But see, the real course of events are recorded in the scroll. And the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, is the only one who can break the seals and open the scrolls and tell us really what will happen in the future. Who will judge the world? That's what he's saying. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they ate of the forbidden food. And then God said, uh, and the Bible said that they saw themselves naked and they were ashamed. So they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. And so one day, God came and confronted them and they said, why, why did you eat? And they said, we were tempted. What's interesting here is that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where would God take these garments of skins and cloth them? It's simple. From a perfectly healthy animal that God killed to cloth them. Now, we understand luxury. Your belts and your bags and your shoes are some made from animal skins. We have that luxury because something died, an animal died. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I'm saying this to make a comparison. To cover the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, God has to cover them and to kill an animal for it. See, they sued fig leaves. At the end of the day, it will dry up. And God will have to give them something that is more permanent. Here's an interesting thought. Have you ever thought for a second that God was surprised when he learned that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden food? Do you think God would not have thought beforehand that these two curious couple, when they roam the Garden of Eden and they see the tree, the forbidden tree, that they will not be tempted? God knows beforehand they will be tempted. God knows in advance. If he's omniscient, then God knows it. So I would say and I would suggest that before Adam and Eve reach the tree, God has already known, he has already chosen the animal. It may be a lamb. Maybe not. But he has already the, chosen the animal that he will slaughter to get the skins from to cover the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve. It's all planned from the very beginning. What I'm saying is that God is never confronted by these surprises. At the end of the day, the fig leaves will dry and God have already this new set of clothes ready for them. You see, God knows he knows our weaknesses. He knows what's going on inside our heads. He can see through the malice of our hearts. So in His mercy, He offers an antidote in advance. 
What's the antidote to Adam and Eve? They were barred from the Garden of Eden because there was another tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. Had they been given an access back, they would have taken from the fruit of the tree of life an antidote to death. See, this is very interesting. Think about this. Before Jesus was crucified, the night before, he broke the bread and he said, take it, eat it. This is my body. Why would Jesus say that? And then you see him Friday afternoon hanging on the cross and you look at this. The image of the tree of life and the image of Jesus hanging on a tree. And you think about it. Jesus was offering his body as an antidote to death. Because he was the one who said, I have the keys to death in Hades. I can prevent people from dying and I can bring people from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. The only reason that he can, he's worthy of praise and adoration and worship is because he offered his life for us. We sing, worthy, worthy is the Lord. Why? Because He did something for you and for me. The people acclaim Caesar of worthy, of worship and glory and honor and power because Caesar have conquered the rest of the Western Hemisphere and he brought riches to the Roman Empire because so that people will say, hail Caesar. Why do we say hail Jesus it's because he did something very personal for us and it's a matter of life and death for us so here's the thing Jesus is the antidote to life and death he may look like a lamb that was slain because it only reminds us of what he did for us but in actuality he's the lion of Judah the root of David the Bible said the 24 elders and the four creatures all worshipped him. And not only that, all creatures in heaven, the angels, on earth, mankind and all animals, and under the earth, the dead, and in the sea, even the enemies, all worship God and give him worthy of praise and adoration. Let's put this in perspective. What happens when we worship? See, in the time of Caesar, to worship Jesus is an act of defiance. Because to worship Jesus is to say, Caesar is not divine, only Jesus is divine. It's an act of defiance. To come to church on Sunday for the first century believers is an act of treason. And that's why they are persecuted. Some are beaten, thrown in prison, killed, thrown in the den of lions. Some were burned for entertainment. But they will get this one chance, one chance to publicly show their allegiance and worship to Jesus because he's worth it. What does it mean for us to worship Jesus? See, people will do all sorts of things to show what they believe and who they follow. And you know this, people will kneel in protest. They wear statement shirts. They march the streets with slogans. What do we do as Christians? to tell the world who we are, who we believe, and what we believe. See, it may not mean much to you, but when you show up to worship on Sunday, and when we sing, we raise our hands, we are publicly displaying our faith in front of the world who look down upon us with contempt, just because. 
when we worship, this is our witness to the world. You remember Jesus telling the disciples, you shall be my witnesses? Church, this is our witness. The world knows that we are here in this theater. Number 14, they know that there are Christians worshiping Jesus here. It's, it's a different scenario, of course, if we are in China. We cannot just come here publicly. See, there are underground churches in China. They cannot publicly display their faith because they will be arrested. But they have to do it because they still believe that Jesus is worth of worship. I don't know about you, but Sunday morning when I wake up, I devote myself to this worship regardless of whether we sing lousy songs, we hear lousy messages. But see, God is the only audience in this room. I don't care if you sing out of tune. The only audience is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And He's worthy of praise, adoration, glory, and honor because He was slain. The Lamb that was slain, remember, is a lion. Heavenly Father, we confess our sins when sometimes we take lightly that going to church sometimes may not be as serious as we think it was. Father, allow us to see the reality that, that when we come to church, we are worshiping you, a great God. to open our eyes, open our spiritual eyes so that we can see you in worship, so that we can see how awesome you are, how holy you are, how worthy you are of our adoration and worship. Father, we declare that we do not worship any other gods or man or any leader. We declare that there's only one king in our lives and that is Jesus Christ. And we declare, Father, that because of what Jesus did, although he was a lion, he's also a lamb that was slain for us. And because of this, Father, you are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name.